You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, January 8th, 2019 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So Donald Trump will be giving, or when you hear this, will have given his speech in prime time. I think the news that the networks acquiesced to this bothered me more than it should have. Now, in a moment, you're going to hear me speak with NPR's David Folkenflik. And, you know, it's very therapeutic. I get I get all my angst out. Actually, it's, it's more factual than anything. One of the things we talk about is uh, the idea that the consequence of the speech might not be so dire. And there is a body of research about this. In 1993, George Edwards, the director of the Center for Presidential Studies at Texas A&M, built a whole program around presidential rhetoric, and he began studying it. And what he found was later written in his book called On Deaf Ears, The Limits of the Bully Pulpit. And it was a very thorough examination of the times the president spoke to a nation and how little it helped, how little it seemed to have advanced legislation or changed the public mood. He looked at Roosevelt's radio addresses, the famous fireside chats, and found they moved the needle less than one percentage point in his approval rating. FDR, JFK, Reagan, Obama, George W. Bush, none of these guys really affected polls when they went on TV to speak, and sometimes speaking on TV had this bizarre negative effect because another researcher, Francis Lee of Maryland, found out when the president becomes involved, he polarizes it. So his own party might rally behind it, but politicians who shouldn't be against the proposal sometimes start being against that simply because the president endorses it. The example that Ezra Klein gave was during the Obama debates about health care, he championed or there was an idea to champion. Yes, he championed the individual mandate. Now, the thinking was this should be popular among Republicans. Dozens of Senate Republicans co-sponsored health care bills that included an individual mandate. Mitt Romney, of course, had an individual mandate when he was governor of Massachusetts. But because the president said it and said it in a speech, the Republicans came to hate it. Now, that's all interesting, and maybe it will serve as a limiter of the effectiveness of Donald Trump's speech. My concern with giving him the speech had nothing to do with effectiveness. It had to do with ethics. But I also think that all the information from the past, how a presidential endorsement might serve to polarize, is not that applicable now because it's already baked in. We are already maximally polarized. Expressing an idea with the hope that you will appeal to the base is pretty much the only thing Donald Trump does, as is encapsulated in the tautology that Donald Trump's base are the only people who support Donald Trump. It's also a a rather poor objection to say, and I will be saying this to Dave, that, well, 
We'll give the president the pulpit because it's really important that the president be able to communicate and reason with the mass of the American electorate. But if you're worried, don't be because he probably won't be able to convince them. It's like, well, we'll fill the baby's bottle with mezcal, but don't worry, it is good parenting because he'll certainly spit it out if he even drinks it at all. I'm against giving him the speech because of morality, because Donald Trump lies. And I also am pre-objecting to the idea that he is going to start framing the crisis at the border as a humanitarian crisis. Asking Donald Trump to recognize a humanitarian crisis is like asking the Taliban to judge America's next top model. It's like asking a cobra, hey, which field mouse would make the cutest pet? It's not that he's bad at doing that. It's that there is a dyad. There are two ways of looking at the problem or any problem, the humanitarian way or the martial way, the militaristic warlike way. And Donald Trump is on the opposite side of that, which is humanitarian. He doesn't even understand how humanitarian type words should be used like beauty, which is a concept in the humanities. He uses beauty to describe his tariffs and his walls. And then he uses words like strong or powerful to describe taking a look at libel laws. I'm going to take a strong look at libel laws. So beyond the lying, it just rankles me that he is being given the opportunity to recast this as a humanitarian challenge. This is the man who once tweeted about Democrats in the wall. They don't care about crime and want illegal immigrants, no matter how bad they may be, to pour into and infest our country, like MS-13. So bad grammar, but also the horrible calumny of using infestation and immigrants in the same phrase. A humanitarian would see refugees as literally people deserving refuge, he sees them as one would see a plague. The United States will not be a migrant camp, and it will not be a refugee-holding facility. Won't be. You look at what's happening in Europe, you look at what's happening in other places, we can't allow that to happen to the United States. Not on my watch. On Trump's watch, any humanitarian crisis that can be said to have happened was, if anything, caused by Donald Trump. The crisis is coming from inside the House. And tonight, the words will be emanating from inside the White House. On the show today, I spiel about not one, two, three, or four Gs, but 5G. But first, that conversation I promised with a true humanitarian. I mean, he covers network executives and finds them somewhat sympathetic. NPR's David Folkenflik is here to talk about Trump's talk. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com tonight the networks will or depending on when you hear this podcast will have broadcast president trump's first address from the oval office when the president requests such a time he is a as a matter of course given that but for extraordinary circumstances the problem or at least the issue is every donald trump utterance can be considered an extraordinary circumstance if you're in the news biz, which is to say the truth biz. David Folkenflik covers the media for NPR. He is also the host on Select Fridays of On Point, 
the WBUR public radio program almost every Friday. Hello, David. How are you? Hey, Mike. So I want to get into your analysis and my analysis. But first, let's get to the facts from your reporting. How did the networks come to this decision? Well, you, you notice it took a few hours uh, Monday for it for people to say, yeah, we'll carry this thing from the major networks. It wasn't an instantaneous response. I talked to one broadcast executive who said it wasn't a slam dunk and that it was kind of a circumstantial case to decide to do it. And the broadcast executives look at this and they say the shutdown itself is the crisis. Uh, the president wants to talk to the public. It would be his first uh, Oval Office address to the public during his time in office. And it is, in fact, the first time he's requested that. And they're inclined to allow him the opportunity to do that. The negatives, which are pretty self-evident, are that he's not signaling he's going to say anything new. You know, it's likely to be a purely political argument in favor of his position, in which case the broadcast networks are a little wary of just turning their airwaves over to any politician, even the president of the United States, to make a political case. And I think that's why you've seen them accede to the Democratic demands or request, however you want to call it, that they be allowed the chance to rebut the president. So I think the president gets, call it eight or nine minutes, and the Democrats are expected to have around two minutes to respond. Uh, And the analogy that was offered to me by this broadcast executive was think back to Obama in 2011. He wanted to address the imminent deadline of the debt ceiling expiration. And they gave him the time because it was a real imminent peril uh, to the nation's financial health. And they also gave uh, then uh, House Speaker John Boehner uh, sufficient time to respond. Yeah. So I I want to, in a couple of questions, get into the parallels between past administrations, either giving the time or not giving the time as happened with Obama. And I want to, and we will definitely get into how apt a comparison is that when you inject into the decision-making the fact that past presidents might say things to bolster their positions and phrase things in a way that someone could object to. But with this president, there's the issue of just basic truthfulness. So how apt are comparisons? But I want to ask you about all the networks deciding together. Is that a good thing looking at it from a perspective of civics or a bad thing? Or should we look at it from a perspective of self-interest or even business interests? I think they are looking for the opportunity to talk out the issue with people who are placed in exactly the same circumstances. And I think sometimes there's some comfort from seeking out peers, even if they're also your competitors, and say, all right, what the hell do we do with this? And so in that sense, I kind of respect it. You know, they are seeking information even from people that they are hotly contesting for not only stories, but for advertising dollars, right? On the other hand, you you know, you have lockstep, you have this sort of monochromatic response. And I think that this is a moment where, because of the issues you've raised, it might be useful for one or more news organizations, major news organizations, to experiment a little bit. And they say, well, look, we are giving a very traditional and conventional response and treatment to somebody who's... uh, approach to facts and the truth are not only unconventional, but completely uncharted waters. Yeah. And you have the networks or at least representatives there of the people who run the news division saying this is different. We have to learn different ways to cover him. And then when given the opportunity, there is no different way to cover him. So look, you know, Ted Koppel, for whom I have just abiding respect and and admiration as well as affection, he came out and said, look, this is the president's first request. 
to give an address from the Oval Office. And if he comes out and has nothing new to say and is deeply deceptive, then lesson learned and you don't do it again. But this is his first chance and you do it. What I do think is that they are, you could argue, bending over backwards to be fair to a president who has no compunction about not only treating the media roughly and not only disrespectfully, but irresponsibly, but also takes that same approach towards the facts. You know, every president spins. Every president makes a case in the best possible way for the policy he's promoting. You know, every president shades the truth, at times deceives the public. This is just a completely different order and magnitude in terms of the ways in which the president and those speaking on his behalf manipulate and twist and ignore the truth, even when confronted with the facts and blithely moved on. You've seen that in recent days with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You've seen that with the vice president. Time and again, they are making claims that are not unsupported, but contradicted by the facts, usually by the facts of their own government. Yeah. And that is the only issue to me. If you're in the news business, you are fundamentally in the truth business. You cannot allow your airwaves or your print or your your website to be used to disseminate lies knowingly. Yeah, I think a lot of news executives are going to be watching very warily, wincingly, just desperate for the president to hew more closely to supportable arguments than he almost invariably tends to. I mean, to me, it just shows that I don't buy the analogy that, you know, we're playing checkers, he's playing chess or three-dimensional chess. I think the networks are playing chess and he's playing, let's pick up a cricket bat and hit those geeks who are playing chess. It is true that it's probable that the speech won't have much of an impact. That is the least compelling argument to me. In fact, were the speech to have a huge impact? Think about that. If you're saying, well, it probably won't be that bad because the speech probably won't have a big impact. That's actually weighing in on on the politics and the policies and not what you should be doing. That for me is not a reasonable explanation about giving him the airtime. And it all only comes down to the lying. And I don't see any evidence that they have done anything real to figure out a way to correct for a central figure who lies an average of 15 times a day. I, I mean, I think that's there's a strong case to be made for exactly what you're saying. I think that, you know, if you think about the media, you're get the idea of it is that it mediates information. You know, it mediates the news. It is in some ways what its critics complain it of being, which is a filter. And that is its a source of frustration for folks, but that's also a source of its strength is that it's supposed to check and test the information that's been provided and the claims that are being made. At times, I think it's useful to carry the full text of speeches, uh, the full speech on, on a broadcast network uh, so that people can understand, you know, at, at particularly important moments, it's an important thing to do. But Trump has shown both in campaigning for office and in office itself that uh, he has a Dis, uh, not only just a disregard, it's not like he's amoral, it's that he has a contempt for factually based claims and for fact and for truth. And that is supposedly antipathetic to what journalists are up to. So, you know, the fact is that in this instance, journalists have again lapsed into sort of conventional ways of thinking about this. And I am struck that none of them decided, even MSNBC, which has on many of its shows, refused to carry press briefings by Sarah Sanders because, as its anchors say, uh, she misleads uh, the public and reporters in her responses. So it doesn't want to carry her things live. Even MSNBC says, look, we're going to be carrying this thing. And 
I think it's, it was an opportunity to think about, are there other ways to do this? Are there other devices? Can we take advantage of technologies? Can we just say to ourselves, we don't have to do it at the second he wants it to be done? And I think there was an opportunity to do it there and that if they're not going to rethink it, then they have to find ways to acquit themselves, obviously surrounding it with analysis and fact check, you know, which they will surely do for many hours as opposed to the minutes that this is supposed to last. You know, you can try to acquit yourself that way. And that's great. But on the broadcast side, you know, it's not cable with hours to fill on the, you know, the three, four big broadcast networks. They're going to have an imperative to wrap it up as quickly as possible. And so, you know, you're probably going to see a lot less of that truth telling and that fact checking. And essentially, the president is going to get an unfiltered political argument out there and heaven help us if we're going to rely on it to be truthful. Before I talked to you, I watched when Jeff Zucker, who's the head of CNN, sat down at Harvard, and this was soon after the election. He said, if we had to do it over again, we wouldn't have played so many of his rallies in the beginning of the campaign. But when asked to justify that, uh, there was a little hemming and hawing of if it was a news judgment or a ratings judgment, but he kept coming back over and over again to it's, you never know what he's going to say, but you never know what he's going to say. The definition of news is what's new. You never know what he's going to say. And I wonder if the networks have uh, begun to realize that that is a bug, not a feature. They have. I mean, it was a, you know, it was an adrenaline high or a sugar high that was repeatedly reached on the campaign trail. And you didn't want to be the network that didn't carry something. And then something outrageous happened and all the eyeballs were on the other networks. And so it was really a question of playing prevent defense. Uh, there's some crazy like seven-way prisoner's dilemma that would no doubt explain this. But, you know, they're basically saying, I don't want to lose this to the other networks. And it, it explains why football and uh, certain kinds of reality contests are among the very most popular shows on TV because they're the very few kinds of programming where you can't, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. I don't know why. I don't think that NPR or the cable news networks airing it is that surprising or big a deal. You think this for you, this is really just about broadcast news. Yeah, it's a, it's it's an exception, a major exception to what they do. And it's an exception that signals something and confers upon the speaker more legitimacy than just uh, what the, you know, news outlets that are a 24 hour or in the case of NPR, you know, serious news outlets are all about. It's something special. And I don't, I'm not against it. Like I said, many times, it's not about giving him an honor of doing it. It's about, you know, the guardianship of truthfulness that you are. I think that they are relying on uh, the rebuttal by uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi and Democratic Senate leader uh, Chuck Schumer. They're relying on the brevity of the speech and their ability to weigh in pretty promptly. And that is, you know, if the speech is only eight minutes long and uh, Pelosi is talking only for two minutes with Schumer, then, you know, it's only going to be four, five, six, seven minutes since whatever claim it is they're rebutting and that they'll they'll probably surround that with a decent amount. But you're right. Cable in its own uh inimitable way and NPR in in you know its own thoughtful way are going to be providing you know some discursive analysis of what happened and the broadcast networks are going to have to decide how much time they're willing to devote to that to debunking it because you could probably spend more time debunking than the actual time the president's going to spend on making whatever claims he makes and he may he may want to just upend everything and make fairly careful claims, you know, that don't inflame the uh, the fact checkers. But I can't imagine that's going to be the case. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem hard to make a very strong case as he and his supporters see it without lying with abandon. That case 
has been made by many congressional and senatorial Republicans. And many commentators actually make the case for the wall without resorting to gigantic lies such as terrorists coming over the southern border. It's possible. Sure. Sure. I mean, this is a policy argument uh, that's uh, playing out as though it's a crisis. So last thing I want to ask you is uh, in an interview in The New Yorker, Brian Stelter, who roughly does what you do for CNN, although he doesn't have that plum hosting gig of of On Point on Fridays. Uh, Brian Stelter said he was not (laughs) Stelter Sundays, we call it, rather than Folk (laughs) and Fridays. It's not as good. Uh, Stelter said he wasn't surprised that the networks made this decision. In fact, he was surprised that they took a few hours to do the hand wringing. Were you surprised by the ultimate decision? No, it was pretty predictable. But the question is you know, the second, third, fourth time down, does going through the exercise make them think differently about things? And does the experience of watching what the president does uh, with this opportunity affect their willingness to go down that road? Broadcast news executives uh, follow the political winds as well. And they are trying to, you know, navigate these things. And I don't think they're trying to, I think they're trying to avoid signaling to the president's supporters out in, in their viewing public that they're reflexively hostile to allowing him to perform presidential function. He's a president. He's asked for time from the Oval Office. He's talking about an issue. There is a shutdown. So it's a point at which the public might want to hear from him. Their thinking is, yeah, we probably need to do this, but they don't feel good about it. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good to know. They're just. I don't sick know if that's good it. or not, but that's where we're at. <laughs> They're not able to keep dinner down tonight. That's good to know. I think they'll eat fine. Oh, very good. <laughs> Sweet breads for everyone. David Folkenflik covers the media for NPR, and on Fridays he hosts NPR's On Point in the afternoon. Check that out. Thank you, David. Thanks, Mike. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com and now the spiel i came across this ad in the new york times today And you know, I really did come across it in the New York Times because if it wasn't the New York Times, it wouldn't sound like this. When we say 5G, we mean 5G. And then at the bottom of the ad, it identified itself as being written by Verizon or a person from Verizon. And I was intrigued, which is spelled with at least one G, because I don't really know what 5G is. And I was eager to learn. I know that eggnog has three G's. I know that if we got all the original members of NWA back together, we'd have five OGs, though Ice Cube and Dr. Dre would still have beef from what I understand. So I dug in an open letter to the wireless industry and our customers. Oh God, when a tech company has to pen an open letter on the print pages of the New York Times, It's like as if almost 600 years ago, Gutenberg wrote an open letter to his fellow printers, but using a calligraphy quill. Sorry, guys, this quill is killing me. A few years ago, I invented movable type, and this is the best way to tell you about it. But the 5G letter from Verizon goes on. Everything is about to change. Breakthroughs in artificial intelligence, robotics, virtual and augmented reality, autonomous vehicles, so they're just listing all the cool things, right? Wearables, and, oh, you know, when you get a list like this, it's going to happen, and 
the Internet of Things. Oh, God, the Internet of Things. This is the worst newfangled phrase invented. Is it a map or is it the printing press of locations? You could do better than the Internet of Things. But it says wearables and the Internet of Things will all impact our lives. Corporate speak, what are you going to do? In ways we can't imagine. Underpinning these technological advancements is 5G. We have the potential to power the fourth industrial revolution and help change the world. This is all the elements of Gabbo, 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 or the Cloverfield ad campaign. It's getting me all pumped. 5G is going to power the fourth industrial revolution. I was worried about the fifth great extinction. I didn't know we were only on three industrial revolutions. So we have one more G than industrial revolutions? Did one of the industrial revolutions take up two Gs? That hog of a third industrial revolution, let's say? But anyway, I'm primed. I'm excited. I still don't know what 5G is. I know that 3G is this boxer and that apartment 3G was one of those comic strips that seemed really inefficient to read. And I know that Triple X is both a form of pornographic movie, but also a movie with Vin Diesel. And Double X was a slate feature, which was all about ladies being positive, but also maybe, I guess, a lesser kind of porn. But then Double X became very, very insulting to ladies because not all ladies have the Double X. Anyway, back to 5G. Put it simply for me. Simply put, 5G is a game changer. And because of that, I believe it's too important for us to play games with. I regrettably see what you did there. I googled game changer and gagged, which is a sentence that requires 7Gs. I'm still not sure what 5G is, but it goes on specifically. I'm talking about how our industry explains what 5G is and what 5G does. Yes, that's exactly why I'm reading this ad, so that you can explain what 5G is. Please explain that. Together, we have a choice to make. When? Right now. If we get it right, consumers and businesses will know what to expect from 5G, which I don't right now, and can make informed decisions, which is all I want to do, around which products and services meet their needs. But if we get it wrong, Our industry risks confusing and underwhelming the marketplace at the very time we want them to share our excitement. That is true, and I can attest to its truth because I am confused right now. The good news is that getting it right simply means being clear about what 5G is and isn't. Okay, tell me what 5G is. Goes on. As America's largest wireless carrier, we recognize that Verizon has a key role to play, and we will lead by example. Not by telling me what 5G is yet. Verizon believes 5G requires new device hardware connecting to the network using new radio technology to deliver new capabilities. Okay, that's what 5G requires, but it's still not exactly telling us what it is. At this point, I'm thinking about the Scientology concept of beingness. There are definitions out there, but from what I understand, Scientology talks about beingness and asks its the Scientologists talk about beingness as maybe a way to confuse some recruits. And you say beingness a lot. And the people think they know what beingness is, but beingness can mean anything. What I'm saying is if the internet of things is the internet of things, then 5G is the beingness of technology. I mean, seriously, what does that mean? Oh, that's, that's not me saying it. That's the very next line in this ad. What does that mean? It means Verizon won't take an old phone and just change the four in the status bar to a five. 
It means we won't take our 4G network and call it a 5G network if customers don't experience a performance or capability upgrade that only 5G can deliver. Okay, so now I'm getting it. What this new thing is, is it's not the old thing calling itself the new thing. It's the new thing. But what exactly is the new thing? We know it's not deceptive marketing, but what is it? Because doing so would break an enduring and simple promise that we've made to our customers, not to define what the hell 5G is. No, it's each new wireless generation makes new things possible. Verizon is investing in 5G labs and working with partners around the globe to build a 5G network and services that will fundamentally change how we live, work, and play. I don't know. So far, it seems a little like a marketing gimmick. Convince me it's not. Well, here's the next sentence. This isn't a marketing gimmick. And you know, if it were a marketing gimmick, they couldn't say that, could they, in a bout of marketing? Our industry promised that 5G will change the world. Verizon intends to keep this promise, even if we don't tell you exactly what the hell 5G is. We have built a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity to redefine how people think about and use technology. Building 5G right means not compromising. And then the guy who wrote it, Kyle Malady, maybe a woman, signs it, and that's it. They're done. When they say 5G, they mean 5G. I'm still pretty unclear what 5G is. I found out it's not compromising. It's not marketing. It's not changing a four to a five. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is 5G. I think implied in this is that 5G is just better phones. Isn't that what it means? And I think, because I did a little research, there's a URL, verizon.com slash about slash news slash when we say 5G, we mean 5G. You mean no one else had that URL? I think what it means is we're going to give you better phones and also AT&T is full of shit. AT&T did something today where they called something 5G and it wasn't 5G. So anyway, I took a lot of your time. This ad took a lot of your time. It wasted a lot of money in the New York Times to tell you this. 5G, a better phone. Also remember, AT&T is full of shit. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who are introducing the 5H. They take the 4H and the heart, head, hands, and health that organization stands for and add hang gliding. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She's taking that bottle she sips off of to get through the day and adding 10. So instead of a 40, it'll be a 50. The gist, oh, you know we're going to be at Union Hall on Saturday and a live show slash trivia extravaganza called Subdue the Guru. Slate's Dana Stevens will be there. The New Yorker's Adam Davidson will be there. On the media's Brooke Gladstone will be there. Jody Avergan, who used to be with 538, then he quit. He'll be there. We're adding more people every day. And you too can join unionhallny.com for tickets. The Gist, joining you today from the Vermeil Room in the White House. Thank you for listening to these important words from a room once used for polishing silver. You know it's important if it came from the Vermeil Room. Um, Umperu, depru, duperu, and thanks for listening.